Hey, welcome to The Scrum, WGBH's politics podcast. I'm Adam Riley, and in this episode, you're going to hear me and Peter Kadzis talk with Yawu Miller, the senior editor of the Bay State Banner, about the showdown between Rachel Rollins, the New Suffolk County District Attorney, and Governor Charlie Baker. Quick refresher. A couple weeks ago, Rollins released a 66-page memo detailing her vision for the office and making the case for incarcerating fewer people who commit low-level, nonviolent offenses. Then Thomas Turco, the state's secretary of public safety, sent Rollins a letter he also released to the media, warning that her policies could hurt the state's efforts to fight the opioid epidemic. Rollins then held a press conference in which she said Turco was misreading her memo She also referenced a sexual assault allegation that was leveled against Governor Baker's son, AJ, last year, saying not everyone gets the benefit of the Baker family when they have interacted with the criminal justice system. They don't get to not get arrested, have the state police that reports to them handle the investigation, etc. For the record, that allegation was ultimately handed over to the U.S. Attorney's Office, and it's not clear whether or how it was resolved. After those comments, Baker and Rollins spoke by phone, and things seemed to be simmering down until Sunday, when Rollins supporters rallied on her behalf in Dorchester, and Rollins said this. What they chose to do was write a letter, hand-deliver it to me, at the same time they hand-delivered it to the press. Had the secretary or the governor picked up the phone and spoken to me, sat down and said, we disagree with everything you're saying, and then written this letter, you wouldn't have heard a word from me. We are allowed to disagree with each other, but what you are not going to do is disrespect this office. And, Rollins said, This is an an example of when someone slaps you in the face and thinks you're going to turn away and cry, and you take your earrings off, roundhouse kick them in the face, and then punch them to the ground. That rally at Prince Hall was organized by the activist Monica Cannon Grant. She told me why she put the event together and what she thinks it proved. D.A. Rollins has been a dirt attack for a while. Um, from the moment she took office, there's been lawsuits filed against her. The community was made privy to the letter that Governor Baker's office, or his staff rather, sent over to D.A. Rollins. And when we read the letter, it was just, it, it came across as blatantly ignorant, but also disrespectful. Anyone who's pushing to force people to incarcerate individuals and communities of color gets a slap in the face to everything that we fought for to get her in office. And so once we read the letter, I rallied a couple of folks and I said, we need to mobilize. We need Governor Baker and his team to know that community power is stronger than political power and that D.A. Rollins isn't doing anything different than what we asked her to do and to follow through on the campaign promises she made. It was amazing. It was warm. There were people who kind of shed tears at the amount of support that D.A. Rollins received. I think one of the narratives we wanted to debunk is is she's not just supported by black and brown communities, but communities across across Suffolk County. So we had the city councilor from Chelsea speak on her behalf. She had activists from Winthrop, and also that we won't stand for anyone trying to attack her doing exactly what she campaigned to do that we as a community would rally, we would stand behind her. If we needed to be outside of the state house, we would have did that too. There's been a change in the air when it comes to Boston politics for a really long time. And I think people are tired of, you know, going along to get along. And it's this mantra in Boston that you you can't say too much. And you, you fight behind closed doors, but you, you have dignity with each other 
you know, outside. And I think people are like, why can't we call it what it is? It's blatant racism. When you have one population of people that when they go through the criminal justice system, they're treated differently than others, there's no way to ignore that. We're not looking for favors. We're looking to be treated equally in a country that professes that on a regular basis. And here, without further ado, is what Yawu Miller and Peter Kadzis make of it all. Yawu, you were at the rally on Sunday. Can you describe the scene for us? It was about 180 people. There on the stage were elected officials, and also there were a few hanging out in the audience, a lot of political activists. It, uh, there were clergy there and just regular voters, like community members. And the atmosphere, the tone was sort of like people felt like Rachel Rollins was under attack and that, you know, the entire community had to come out to support her. You know, she herself seemed like she she did not seem like she was playing the victim role in this whole thing. But but people felt as though, you know, she was facing an an undue amount of, of of criticism from in some parts the media, but mostly the the Baker administration. Peter Kadzis, you want to hop in here? I just think it's dumb politics. This is what she was elected to do. She spelled most of this out. To be honest with you, having poured over that memo, all the memo did, and it did it very well, was provide the intellectual justification for what she campaigned on. I mean, going after her at this point strikes me as a a way of trying to nullify the Suffolk County District Attorney's race. And I don't usually make sweeping statements like that. The other reaction I had was it's a sign of how provincial some in city and state politics are. And that does not include the District Attorney. 38 states, including Texas, Mississippi, Alabama, Georgia, Florida, hardly bastions of progressivism or liberalism, are going down similar lines. They're taking a much more comprehensive approach to criminal justice reform. Certainly, they're they're more active than the state of Massachusetts is, but we're talking about Suffolk County and Boston. So I found it rather amazing, let's put the politics aside, that on a policy level that, uh, you know, Thomas Turco would release the letter he did. I understand where the Baker administration was coming from. They're very sincere about their efforts to fight opioid addiction. But if they look at what the DA is proposing to do, what she says she will do, fold it into the um, um, amazingly rich amount of facts and figures that are in her memo, you know, is a table that shows that among those recently incarcerated, those who were let out of prison, if if they use opioids, they're most likely to die from an overdose in the first month in which they're out of they're they're out of they're prison. Out of prison yeah. Now, this is a small portion of the larger opioid community, but it's a very significant one. On that issue alone, it would be worth the Baker administration talking 
to the DA. Another point that, that Rollins brought up is that Baker's administration, you know, no uh, black person in any major cabinet position, you know, very few people of color in his administration at all. So from that context, you know, maybe, you know, subconsciously they're looking at it, they're not going to see her in the same light that they see Dan Conley and perhaps not think that she's due the same level of respect they would give to Dan Conley. And I think they made, they made a in that, they made a tremendous miscalculation, whether it was conscious or subconscious, because clearly things have changed in this state. What did you make, to that point, of Monica Cannon-Grant saying that the way this has all shaken out is evidence of a sea change in the way politics are conducted in Boston, with uh, big disagreements being hashed out in the open, maybe somewhat aggressively, as opposed to being dealt with discreetly behind closed doors. Do you two think that she's onto something? I think Rollins herself probably would have rather handled it quietly because she's been quiet about this stuff, you know, uh, about these changes and things. I mean, you know, she came in with uh, 15 charges and, you know, People, you know, have been agitating on the outside, like, when's this going to happen? You know, 90 days. It's been very quiet. So I think, you know, she probably would have handled it quietly, sort of in the old school way. Yeah, what is different, though, is that when she gets up on that stage, it's a bunch of women elected officials. She's get, you know, there's a letter from Ayanna Presley in, in Congress, uh, from Sonia Chang-Diaz in the Senate. Over the last 10 years, the um, elected uh, officials in Boston, um, including the president of the Boston City Council, the president of the Chelsea City Council, they're women now. So to the extent that a, uh, a, a, a somebody from the Baker administration, you know, a man could sort of walk in and say, I'm going to do this this way and not afford her the same level of respect, all of a sudden she's not alone. And that, that whole calculus has changed. Here we may be seeing... Um, the price the Republican Party pays for its relatively narrow base. It, it, it's just lack of exposure um, because the Republican Party in Massachusetts, which is intellectually far more elastic than it is nationally, but be, because the Republican Party is increasingly uh, a, a, a party of uh, a, a white intellectual minority. Um, your day-to-day life as a Republican just doesn't bring you into contact with people different from yourself. Now, I hadn't really given a lot of thought to this until we started talking about it here, but, um, you know, I think that's a reasonable argument. That's an interesting point, and it's worth noting, I think, that Governor Baker has worked to change that aspect of what it means to be a Massachusetts Republican, right? He put such a premium in both his campaigns on going to communities of color, going into Boston. My recollection, tell me if I'm wrong here, guys, is that he actually won Suffolk County. He um, did. The governor did surprisingly well in urban minority communities across the state. So this is something that he wants to change, a perception that he wants to change. And yet here in one fell swoop, he may be reinforcing. Right. I mean, one of the points that was made and repeated uh, Sunday was you can't come into our community and play basketball and breakdance and expect to, you know, that, that, um, you know, that people, that people are going to go along with everything that you have here. You know, like you just can't do that. Baker's like 
sort of ushered in an aura of like, you know, everybody getting along together, sort of like no public disputes, um, guy who they want to go out and have a beer with. And then, you know, right here, you know, policy, you know, rubber hits the road and, you know, all of a sudden, um, you know, it's not, that's not working out anymore. I wonder if uh, D.A. Rawlins' proposals sound more radical than they really are. Um, uh, D.A. Conley, for example, um, 60% of the, the charges listed on her punch list of things that won't be prosecuted to the full, 60% of those in Roxbury and Dorchester District Court were already being resolved in another way. I think it's important to realize here that when when Rawlins won election, the people in Suffolk County voted for a change. It's interesting that after the fact, we're seeing that she's going in the direction Conley already began to go. And by the way, in her memo, credits Conley. I mean, it, it's a. I urge everyone to you know who's that interested to take a look. She's not claiming that she's going when no person has tread before. She is, I get the impression, pushing farther. Yeah, well, am I right that there are some constituents of D.A. Rollins who think she's moving too slowly when it comes to the reforms she's talking about implementing? Absolutely. Uh, um, there's an organization called Court Watch Massachusetts that um, that has been in the courts monitoring these cases. And it, what they've done is they've sort of given a baseline, um, you know, sampling. They're not looking at every arraignment, but they're mostly looking at arraignments and they're looking at how they're, how, you know, how their arraignments, uh, you know, get handled. And, you know, with that, with an eye toward those 15 charges that Rollins said she wasn't going to prosecute. So for the last 90 days, they've been saying, you know, here's another one of these charges that's on Rollins' list and here's how it got handled. And, you know, like they asked for bail, blah, 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 looking at all the ways that, you know, she wasn't honoring her, you know, commitment to change these things. So that was, that was certainly pressure. I mean, it's been on Twitter and people have been sort of like needling her in that way. Um, and then the ACLU came out with their report on, you know, looking at, um, at what happened under D.A. Conley, but sort of like looking at that stuff. So they also gave her a baseline. So there's been a gentle but persistent nudging. I'll tell you, this whole incident, I wondered how successful Rollins' program was going to be. Um, and I was too lazy to really look deeply into it until this incident was, you know, thrusted upon me. She's engaged in a controlled experiment building on the success that, you know, the, her predecessor had achieved. It, it's really a quite reasonable and responsible program. Well, I mean, among her fiercest critics are police officers, right, in the police unions. And I think it's really, really important to note that, you know, the, um, first of all, police officers like these misdemeanor charges because it gives them, you know, sort of a, a free reign to haul people into court. In some instances, they, you know, it might be, for instance, somebody gets hauled in on trespassing, they can be arrested, you can be, you can spend a night in jail, and you think, you know, trespassing is a very minor uh, crime. 
you know, so in some instances, there might be a compelling reason for that, which is why Rollins in her memo said that, you know, that a, a prosecutor can make the case to a superior and say, like, we need to do this. Like, for instance, it could be somebody who's disorderly and, you know, causing, you know, people um, a lot of trouble in, in, in a particular area, somebody who, um, you know, might be engaged in in acts of violence and, you know, they didn't catch him with a gun or anything on it. Nobody saw anything happen, but they know this to be the case. If you can make that compelling case, then fine. But what's happening in reality is that, you know, tons of people are being, you know, caught on these, like, on these uh, petty charges. Um, and uh, police officers earn overtime just by virtue of the fact that, you know, these people are caught up in the system. They're going to go before a judge. They get, they have a bunch of, K, of of charges that, you know, together add up to nothing, like resisting arrest and trespassing and disorderly conduct. And, um, you know, the police officer can show up in court. It might get dismissed within 20 minutes, but they've got their four hours at time and a half. So, I mean, that's part of what she's up against. And, and, you know, we can't underestimate the extent to which these officers are an important political entity who donate a lot of money to the Baker uh, administration as well as to a lot of other elected officials. Um, certainly not to Rachel Rollins, though. Well, the, the overtime issue is an important one. The police overtime and the excess thereof you know, is a fact of life. I mean, I've sat in countless, well, not countless, I, I, I've sat in a couple of dozen Boston City Council budget meetings. And the one, one of the line items that no one can ever get their hands around is police overtime. Now, anytime the president of the United States visits Boston, that's un, unplanned for overtime. But Overtime comes in a lot of other ways, and one of them is these, you know, low-level crimes that may not be worth prosecuting. And the reason they're not worth prosecuting is we, our system has become so attuned not only to locking up more people than any democracy, but also to slapping more punitive restrictions on them once they leave jail or they leave prison. If you're convicted of a so-called victimless crime and you've had an otherwise spotless life, um, some of your veterans' benefits or federal education aid can be affected. I'm not saying we should coddle people convicted of violent crimes, but these aren't violent crimes. Let me ask you both. Did D.A. Rollins do the right thing by bringing up Governor Baker's son as an example of how a two-tiered criminal justice system operates? I would have to say um, I think it's unfortunate that she did. The reason I say that is it was very effective political hardball. There's no doubt about that. Personally, and Adam, you know I've said this many times, I don't like it when the families of any public official, whether they be privileged or unprivileged, white or black, I don't like involving families in it. Um, I wish she hadn't. Was it effective? I think it was. Unfortunate, though. You know, it's sort of like you walk into a playground and a bunch of people are taunting you and you just take a hard swing at one kid. 
and people understand then who they're messing with. So I mean, I think people are going to, you know, I think that Rollins probably calculated that she had to had to play hardball with Baker, and it's something that he's not at all used to, and, and uh, I think it worked. So where does this go from here? We've got to look at what's happening in other counties as well with these kinds of charges, particularly in counties like Hampton or Bristol, where there are, you know, large cities with a lot of these misdemeanor crimes being prosecuted. I don't think this is going to go away, be- again, because of the uh, the police unions, the political muscle that the police exercise. You know, going back to overtime, you know, I don't, I have no idea how much of the overtime is like, you know, people getting hauled out because the president is visiting or because there's a protest. I believe that's a lot of it. Um, but I do know that it's a lot of the special units like the gang unit and the, you know, the motorcycle cops who get, and, and you know, the drug unit who are doing, um, really doing the, uh, the cases that involve showing up in court and sort of parking there and getting, you know, the overtime. And those officers are, I imagine they're going to raise hell, and I I don't think this is the end of it. Peter Kadzis? Well, I'm going to be annoyingly high-minded. We need several years to see whether this program that D.A. Rollins is proposing will work. Four years, she'll be up for re-election. We'll have numbers. We'll have a chance to see how it's going. And I think she deserves four years. But Yao's probably right. This is is not going to disappear. All right. That is going to do it for this episode of The Scrum. Big thanks to Yawu Miller, the senior editor of the Bay State Banner, for trekking over to WGBH to talk with me and Peter. And as always, thanks to you for taking the time to listen. We'd love it if you subscribed to The Scrum. If you haven't already, we're at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and a bunch of other podcast purveyors. We'd also love to hear from you with praise, pushback, questions, or suggestions. You can reach us by email at scrum at wgbh.org or on Twitter. I'm at Riley Adam. Peter is at Kansas. Our engineer for this episode was John Parker, and we got essential production help from Gary Mott. I'm Adam Riley. The Scrum is a production of WGBH News.